Well, last week we talked about God's deliverance. And this week, as we kind of continue forward in 1 Samuel 20, one of the things that we can kind of look around at our culture and see is that we really kind of live in a security culture, if you think about that for a minute. Um, As our culture has changed over the past several years, the need for security has grown greatly. And with the advent of like wireless cameras and relatively inexpensive alarm systems and door sensors and Wi-Fi security management apps and keyless technologies, people have around-the-clock access security information about their homes and workplaces. However, for some reason, people feel less secure. Honeywell, who is a maker of security alarm systems, did a study a few years ago, and they found that two-thirds of homeowners and 78% of women don't feel completely safe in their homes. They also found that people with more than one person living in their household were actually more likely to feel unsafe than those living alone. In fact, at a rate of 71% to 58%. And the truth is that security, by way of earthly protection, can never be guaranteed. No matter how much information or how much we have around us or how much we know, it can never guarantee our safety. And yet, the true security that we need is one that's eternal and everlasting and whose peace transcends simply this life. And so this morning, as we dive into 1 Samuel, it's clear that God has established His covenant through Christ to grant the assurance of His salvation to His people. And so what we're going to see here in 1 Samuel 20 is a picture of covenant. We're going to see a past covenant and a new covenant. And we're going to see how God secures that covenant. And so, as we did last week, because of the, the length of this text, we're going we're gonna to go through it. We're not going to stand and read it together this morning, but we'll read it in our chunks as we go through the message this morning. And so, at the heart of this passage is that God's assurance and eternal security are experienced when we enter into covenant relationship with His true King. God's assurance and eternal security are experienced when we enter into covenant relationship with His true King. The covenant is the basis for our security. Now, in chapters 18 and 19, as we saw last week, Saul became jealous of David's success and the favor that he had with people. And he tried both to directly and indirectly kill David. We know that he threw spears at David, and David avoided those spears. And then he started to give him his daughters, his wives, so that 
he could exact a, a bride price of going against the Philistines. And, and we saw that God's favor was on David, and so when Saul demanded a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, David came back with 200. That the favor of God was no was no, in no way, shape, or form was going to be lesser than the schemes of the enemy. That the schemes of the enemy were no match for the favor of God. So, when those efforts failed and David escaped, Saul pursued him to Naoth and Ramah where the Holy Spirit stopped Saul in his tracks. And so this brings us to chapter 20. It brings us to a place where David is being pursued by Saul, the the current king of Israel, but the king that has now lost his place. That God is taking away his anointing and he's given it to David. And David is the new king who has been anointed as king, but is serving under Saul. And now Saul, in his rebellion, is seeking to harm David. And so let's look at verse 1. We'll hear in, in, through verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to get one in the back. They're in the back, if you don't own one, feel free to take it with you. But I'll read it. It says this. It says, Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. And if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked to leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. And if he says good... It will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there's guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? And David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. Now, what we see here is that David lacks assurance of his safety. We would all feel the same way. Somebody's coming against us. They're chasing us. They've thrown spears at us. The the last thing that we probably feel is comfortable. In fact, most of us, Think about this for a moment. Most of us would probably turn around and fight back. But there's actually an honor here. Remember, David has slayed Goliath. The truth is that with God, 
Saul is no match for David. But David continues to flee. He he continues to honor the position that Saul has been placed in. And he comes running to Jonathan to find out, have I done something? There's this evil that's being displayed against him. And his first question is, hey, I don't really get what's going on. I know your dad wants to kill me. What have I done to him? And Jonathan says, listen, you've done nothing. You've done nothing. And he says, listen, you're not going to die. I'm with you. And so David questions why Saul wants to kill him. And then, when Jonathan gives him an answer that his father will tell him, David questions that. He lacks confidence that Jonathan will be able to find the truth about Saul's true intentions. In fact, in verse 3, he says, But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Understand the intensity that David's feeling here. Jonathan, I hear your words, but I have no idea how this is going to happen. I hear your words, but there's no way that I can go into the presence of the king without dying. And David then discerns a plan, and he pleads with Jonathan here to remember their previous covenant. You see, he says, if your father misses me at all, David was supposed to meet and was required as a part of the house of the the king to be present for the new moon festival where there were sacrifices that were presented. And David wasn't going to show up at this mandatory meal. So David discerns, listen, if you tell him that I've gone off to Bethlehem, to my hometown, to participate in sacrifices there, if he says good, we'll know what his intention is. But if he is angry, we'll know that his intent is to harm me. The Scripture tells us that David was a man of discernment and wisdom. And so, He discerns a way to reveal what is actually taking place. But then notice what he does. He pleads there. He asks. He he demands. He, He says, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. He's saying, listen, I don't feel safe, but remember your covenant. So even though there's a love for Jonathan, and even though he he understands that there is this relationship between them, there's still this lack of assurance. He's still failing to trust fully in the covenant that they had before. And his words are simply this, Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Now, Dale Davis points out, he says, in confusion and trouble, you take yourself to the one person who's made a covenant with you. 
In David's disintegrating world, there was yet one space of sanity, one refuge still intact, Jonathan. There was covenant. There, David could expect hesed. There was kindness in a raw world. Now that word, kindly, in Hebrew is the word hesed. And that word hesed doesn't translate wonderfully into English. But it's a a loyal, loving kindness. It's not just a display of love, but it is a, a word that is used in covenant relationship to describe this loyal, loving kindness. One that's not forgotten. Alec Moiter, he puts it this way, he says, it combines the warmth of God's fellowship with the security of God's faithfulness. This loving kindness can can only come from God. And so David pleads for Jonathan to demonstrate that loving kindness towards him, that hesed towards him, this loyal Loving kindness. Well, notice their previous covenant hasn't brought assurance. And so, what does Jonathan do? It says that after David says to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? Jonathan says to him, come, let us go into the field. So they both went out into the field. So here's the thing that's going on. David is trying to figure out how in the world Jonathan is going to be able to tell him of the intent of his father's heart. And he's worried that Jonathan is not going to be able to live out or to fulfill the covenant that they've just had in love. You see, this older covenant really is insufficient in bringing the security that's desired. And in the same way, we have a picture of the old covenant that God has granted. He granted to His people through Abraham. A covenant that was based on the law. And we're told in Romans 7 that it says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? And it says, By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it's to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The covenant was actually exposing sin. It was exposing the need for something greater than ourself. It was exposing our insufficiency. But it didn't produce confidence. And so there was a new covenant that was granted. And notice how Jonathan responds to David with this covenant that is failing to produce the assurance. He says in verse 12, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. Here's what Jonathan's doing. He's saying, let's go into a new covenant. Let's make a new covenant, a better covenant. And this is what he says. He says, when I've sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, 
Behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? Verse 13, But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you, and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So Jonathan enters into a new covenant with David. Now what we see here is the fact that it actually reminds us of a new and better covenant that we're granted through Christ. And we're going to see some truths about the new covenant with God's King. So the first truth is that the covenant is established through sacrificial love and faith. This new covenant is established through sacrificial love and faith. Jonathan immediately attaches his life to the covenant. He says, listen, I'm going to lay down my life for you, David. I can promise you that if I sell you out and you are harmed, I am going before the Lord and declaring, do the same to me. He's put his life at stake. It's a commitment of his whole self, his whole person. It's a willingness to say, I'm giving you everything I have, including my life. Why? Because David is the true king. David is the king, not Saul. Jonathan knows that. He says here, in verse, excuse me, in verse 14, he says, If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan understands that David is actually the rightful king. And Jonathan is willing to stake his life on it. He is willing to commit to Jonathan with his life. Amazing part of that is we have God's true king in Jesus Christ. And Christ has asked the same thing of us. In Hebrews 9.15 it says, Therefore He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This new covenant, Christ is the mediator. And He's established this new covenant. And Luke 9.23 says, And He said to all, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. What's amazing? Luke 9.23 is repeated in Mark and Matthew. It's important. What He's saying is that when we come to Christ... We are coming not in in part, but we're coming in whole. 
It's not part of us submitting to God. It's all of us. It's a commitment that says, yes, I'm willing to sacrifice for you because I love you. We know that Jesus went to the cross for us. We know that He laid down His life for us. And so this covenant is one that is established through this sacrificial love where Christ has laid down His life for us and then we begin to lay down our life for Him. But that requires faith. See, Jonathan, it says here, made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And notice this last part. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So wait a second. David's the one that comes in lacking assurance. A new covenant is formed, and Jonathan has staked his life on this new covenant. And he looks at David and he says, I need you to swear again. I need to trust that you are going to honor the words that we have spoken, that you are going to show your steadfast love to me and my family even when destruction comes upon the earth. When we go in faith before Jesus, that's what we're saying. We're acknowledging that Jesus died and rose again for us. And we're coming saying, I believe that you are who you claim to be and that your promises are true And that as I walk with you, as I covenant with you, you will continue to demonstrate your steadfast love towards us, towards me. See that covenant relationship? Jonathan did not want the steadfast love from others. He wanted the steadfast love from the king Because he was the one that had authority. Jesus is the one who has authority. And for us, is that the desire of our heart that we desire the steadfast love of Christ at work within our own life? Are, are we willing to say that I am committed completely, not just partially? Oh God, I, I love you so much, but I really like to gossip. And so that part stays over here. Or God, I, I love you so much, but I, I really like watching porn. God, I, I, I love you so much, but please don't ask me to go anywhere for you. I like my home. I like my friends. I like my comfort. What is it that God is at work within you saying, have you staked your life? Have you covenanted with your life 
Is God getting all of you or part of you? Is your commitment complete or partial? Is your desire to serve Him when it's easy, but curse Him when it's hard? God establishes His covenant through sacrificial love and faith. That's the beauty of the new covenant. Is no longer is it based on works which exposed our need for Christ, but it's based in the work of Jesus Himself. Notice the second truth that the plan for fulfillment of covenant revealed. Plan for fulfillment of covenant is revealed. Verses 18 through 23, it says, Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was at hand, and remain beside the stone heap, and I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look to the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come forth. As the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. David wanted to know how Jonathan was going to reveal to him the intent of Saul's heart. They couldn't meet face to face. So Jonathan comes up with a plan, and he reveals it to David, and he says, here's what we're going to do, and this is how you'll know what's to come. The best part of that is this, it says, as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever." There's this constant underlying belief, this constant underlying sharing, the reminder that God is the one that is constantly at work securing the covenant. And because He's at work, it can be trusted. And so like the plan that is revealed here between Jonathan and David, God also revealed His plan when it came to the Messiah. In Jeremiah 31, we're told what to look for in this coming Messiah so that we wouldn't be left off wondering, are we safe, are we secure, or are we completely in danger of death? And this is what it tells us in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and there shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, for the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Isaiah 53, 4-5 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. God gave us a picture of what to look for. He told us who the Messiah was going to be. He came before so that we might know with confidence the answer that this is the Messiah. Throughout the Old Testament, it points to the cross. Throughout the Old Testament, it points and reveals the true Messiah, Jesus. And Jesus goes to the cross and he's pierced for our transgressions. You see, in the new covenant, we're not left guessing what the answer is, but we are given the answer. We are told what to look for. And I want to encourage you, if you're struggling to to know if Jesus really is the true Messiah, I want to encourage you to look at what God's Word has to say. What was being predicted well beforehand. Know that God did not leave us in the dark going, find it out for yourself. But knowing that God is the one that opens our eyes to His truth and He's given us a plan He's revealed His plan through His Word. I think a lot of times we lose our assurance and our covenant because we don't know God's Word. See, God's designed it so that we might know Him and know what He is doing through His Word so that we might have confidence. And when we're outside of God's Word... We're going to lack confidence because we don't know the plan. And yet he's given his plan and he's revealed his plan. I think sometimes the way that we've taught about quiet time and devotional time has confused our understanding of the importance of God's word. We need God's word for encouragement every day. But we need to know God's plan. We need to know who God is and what He's doing and how He's working His redemption out in our lives through Jesus. And we can't do that when we're not in His Word. We need to be able to know His Word and see His plan revealed. The third truth that we see here is in verses 24 
through 34. And notice what happens. It says, So that David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. And it goes on, and it says there at the end that David's place was empty. In verse 26, it says, Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. And verse 27, But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Now notice Saul's response. It's not a response of happiness. It says, Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled a spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. This third truth about our covenant relationship this new covenant, is that the enemy seeks to destroy covenant relationship. The enemy seeks to destroy covenant relationship. Where there is a covenant between you and someone else and God, where there is a covenant between you and God, the enemy is seeking to destroy it. And notice how clever he is. What does he immediately do? One, He no longer calls Jonathan his son. He calls Jonathan the son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Now understand that tactic first. Saul is completely blind to his own perverseness and rebellion. The very thing that he's accusing Jonathan of is the very thing that he's guilty of. That tends to be the case of accusers. Be weary. Go to the truth. Go to God. Go to His Word for understanding. Notice that then he plays to the shame of Jonathan. He appeals to this shame. You should be shameful, you son. In fact, you're so shameful, I'm not going to consider you my own. But you are the son of a perverse and rebellious woman. And by the way, you're so bad that it's actually a shame to your mother's nakedness. This is guilt. Shame and guilt being displayed in an attempt to do what? What does he do after calling him perverse and rebellious? He says what? He says simply this. He says, bring him to me, right? 
Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. If I can't get you to do what I want you to do now, I'm just going to command it of you after I make you feel poorly. One of the best ways that the enemy gets a hold of us in our covenant relationship with Christ is by shaming us and guilting us. When we feel shame, we feel worthless. When we feel worthless, we tend to to move away from Christ, not towards Christ. When in reality, when we feel worthless, we need to go directly to Christ to say that it is, you are right, apart from Christ, we are worthless, but in Christ, we have been made worthy. The shame, the guilt... If you've been forgiven before God and somebody found out the absolute worst sin that you were ever involved in in your eyes, what's the worst that can happen? Seriously. What's the worst that can happen? If you've already been forgiven by Christ, what's the worst that can happen? Not much. So somebody comes to you and says, I don't forgive you for that? See, the enemy loves to to try to make us fearful of sin that needs to be confessed in our life. He he loves to, to guilt us. He loves to shame us. And guess what happens? It bottlenecks us. Because when God is taking that and He's using a story of redemption in our own life as He's shown that He's actually overcome that sin in our life and He's working through that sin to to make us whole and righteous in Him, we become afraid of disclosing it and we become bottled up. It doesn't mean that we have to share it to the world, but the question for us is what is the worst that can happen if the world knew I'll tell you what the best thing is. The best thing is the world can know that a God forgives even my worst sin. And that under Him I am redeemed. And that's all that matters. That's what He did for us. And the enemy loves to rob us of that. Some of you... Each of us have a testimony to tell, a story to tell of God's redemptive work in our life. How does the enemy shame us from sharing that? You see, Jonathan decided that it was better to serve David, the one that he had entered into covenant, the one true king, not Saul, than it was to serve his own father. The enemy loves to play on our loyalties. Jonathan in that moment says, what did he do wrong? Even when faced with death, he looks at his father and says, what did David do wrong? He's still a truth teller. He's still one who is speaking the truth because his loyalty is to the king not to his father. 
As followers of Christ, where does our loyalty lie? Is it with Christ or is it with the world? Is it with Christ or is it with our family? Is it with Christ or is it with our friends? Because here's the thing, if we follow Christ, then Christ will help us live out the relationship with our family, friends, and the world, but on His terms and standards, not our own. He will show us how to do that. We're told in Romans 8, 1 through 4, this, and it's important we cling to this. He says this thing. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. This new covenant... It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And that's what makes it better. It's because He's eternal. Hebrews 2.2 tells us that Jesus went to the cross and He despised shame. He despised shame. It's kind of a, a, a weird and interesting passage where it says simply this, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression of disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We have this wonderful salvation that we have. Jesus who despised shame. And then in Hebrews 2.2, it tells us here, that every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. It's done with. It's put away. It's gone. Do we live as if it's gone? And finally, this last truth that we see here of this new covenant is that the fulfillment of the covenant leads to the peace of God eternally. It couldn't do what the earlier covenant did Jonathan's covenant with David in chapter 18 was a covenant based in love. It, it had stipulations and rules, but it did not bring assurance because their lives were not staked to it. But this new covenant, their lives are staked to it. In, in the same way, this covenant that we have now with Christ, this new covenant is one where our lives are staked to it because Jesus gave up His life for it. Now notice what happens. Jonathan goes forward after finding out that his father's intent is to kill David. He goes and he shoots the arrow beyond the boy and he screams out, Is not the arrow beyond you? Hurry, quick, do not stay. The boy doesn't know any better. He grabs the arrows. Saul gives him his weapons. And tells the boy to go back to the city. And then, these two who were afraid of being seen together, they pop up. David, who was hidden, stands up, rises up behind 
from the rocks. And it says that, verse 41, they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. This fulfillment of this covenant had a cost. But their love was driving this covenant. And even for just a brief moment, they stood up together, exposed together, them weeping, knowing that their relationship would be changed. But then Jonathan, looking at David, he says simply this. He says, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord. You have nothing to worry about, David. Our covenant is before God and God is the one securing it. And know that I am covenanted with you and no other. And he goes on and says, the Lord shall be between me and you and between me and my offspring and your offspring forever. We know later in 2 Samuel that David actually shows favor towards the Solidians, Saul's descendants. David keeps that covenant even after Jonathan's death. That's the covenant that Jesus keeps with us. We can go in peace because the covenant is intact. We can stand up behind the rocks and be seen with Christ because the covenant is intact. And because God is the one who has secured the covenant, we can go in complete peace. God desires us to experience His peace, the eternality of His salvation. Ephesians 2 tells us this, and I want to encourage you to write this passage down because it's a wonderful reminder for us. It simply says this in Ephesians 2, verse 14 through 22. It says, For He Himself, Jesus, is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to one spirit, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." We can have peace with God and peace with one another because God is the one that is securing the covenant. And because of the work that Christ has done in the new covenant. May our prayer and hope today be that we live as a covenant people. Marked by our sacrificial and faith in Christ. 
Ones who know God's plan and are seeking God's plan. Who are aware that the enemy seeks to destroy the covenant and stand firm against it, as 1 Peter 5 tells us. And then may we experience and walk in the peace that He has granted us through this covenant. Knowing that He is securing it and it is eternal. And that His words are to be trusted. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank You that Your Word reminds us of the power of Your covenant. May we walk out refreshed and renewed and transformed. And God, those areas that You're working on us, Lord, where our lives are not staked to You, may You expose those areas and may we be a people who are completely and wholly staked to You. Lord, may we live by faith, demonstrating your love, experiencing the power of your peace at work in our life as we submit all things to you, knowing that you have dealt with them, you've put them down, and they are done because of the blood of your new covenant. And we ask this in your name. Amen.